Hello, everyone. Welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created to connect writers and readers in the age of COVID and beyond through hundreds of fun and fascinating interviews with best selling authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Do you love Lucy? Darren Strauss does. Lucille Ball is the unlikely subject of Darren's latest book, The Queen of Tuesday. He wrote this part biography, part novel, part memoir, to combine his passions and interests with a family mystery from his past. The result is a fascinating romp that was widely praised when it was released during the height of the pandemic in 2020. Darren, who is also the author of Half a Life, Chang and Eng, and other works, sat down for a chat with New York Times bestselling author and Mighty Blaze co-founder, Caroline Levitt, who recently released the paperback version of her latest novel, With or Without You. We love Lucy, we love Darren, and we love Caroline. So settle in for a behind-the-scenes peek at the magic as I pass the Blaze torch to Caroline and her very imaginative guest, Darren Strauss. Hi, I'm Caroline Levitt, and I'm the co-founder of A Mighty Blaze. And I'm absolutely overjoyed and thrilled to have the amazing Darren Strauss here. He's got this great new book, The Queen of Tuesday, about Lucille Ball that we're going to talk about. And um, it's just, I mean, there it is. And it's been getting, it's been racking up the way, raves, and it's absolutely incredible. Darren has won a Guggenheim. His books have been translated into 14 languages, and they include Cheng and Eng, Half a Life, which totally decimated me, and I still have it on my desk because I love it so much. Uh, More Than It Hurts You, The Real McCoys, and now, of course, The Queen of Tuesday, Tuesday, which is getting um, accolades from The Washington Post, The LA Times, and more, and it's an absolutely amazing Absolutely amazing book. So before I start peppering Darren with questions, I just want to say, this is my new book. <laughs> and um, I had a feature in the Washington Post. Um, I have got a rave in the Star Tribune. This is the anniversary copy of Pictures of You, which was the first book I did for Algonquin. And that's enough of a commercial. So. Well, no, I wanted, I wanted to add too that this is a very, very good book. Thank you, Darren. I'm reading, I'm reading it right now. It's really, really great. Thank you. Okay, so this book, you've done something amazing in this book, The Queen of Tuesday, which is, it's part memoir and it's part fiction. And at first, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh, this part is the real part and this part is the part that Darren's making up. And then after a while, it was so realistic to me that I felt that all of it was true. So I wanted to ask you, how did you, how did this book start? Like, was it germinating inside of me for a while where you said, I want to write about this and I want, it, it's, and I want to write about my grandfather's um, supposed or real affair with Lucille Ball. And when you were writing it, did you, were you very aware of what was real and what wasn't, or did it all seem real to you? That's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, so, so the book is, um... As you say, it's about my grandfather and it's his story on one side and family memoir. And my grandfather was a complicated guy. Um, and it's a story of Lucille Ball and it's sort of a biography of her golden period. And then there's the fictional 
uh, I don't know why I did this. This is the fictional sexual affair that I invented between them. Um, so that is fictional, the affair. Uh, they were at a party together and my grandfather abandoned my grandmother. And so I sort of imagined, I always wanted to know what really happened with my grandparents and with him. I always found it fascinating that he did these bad things, but was beloved of my family anyway. Even by my grandmother, he left her for her best friend and she never stopped thinking about him as her husband. Uh, and, I, and I was fascinated by Lucille Ball. And so I just thought, what a great book. And I wanted, I'd written, as you say, I'd written a memoir and I'd written fiction. And I thought, you know, what if I could take what's great about both mediums, you know? Uh, because I think what makes fiction great, well, what makes fiction hard, I should say, is every time you're writing fiction, you ask yourself, would this happen? Is it possible that this could happen? And so that's a real challenge. Um, but then you can always make it interesting because if, you know, you could always make the story more interesting if, if you're having trouble. And nonfiction, you never have to worry about could this happen because it's true. But the problem there is if it's not interesting, you can't change it. So I thought, well, what if, right. I, could, what if I could take what's great about both and make a book really fun, you know, by, by taking what's fun about fiction and what's fun about nonfiction. Um, and so that's that was sort of the idea. And then just Lucille Ball is such a great character. I feel like she's underappreciated somehow. I mean, everyone knows how famous she is. Uh, I mentioned in the book, and this is true, she was so popular that when her show would break for commercial, the water tables in all the big cities would drop because the entire nation flushed at the same time. Oh my God. Went <laughs> to the bathroom in her commercial. <laughs> so that's how popular she was. But, we don't think about beyond that. She had the first famous interracial marriage on American TV and she had to fight for that. They didn't want, CBS did not want to have a white woman married to a Cuban guy on, on TV. She fought really hard for that. Um, she was the first woman to be a Hollywood executive of successful movie mogul. Um, she uh, forced the network to show her as a pregnant person on TV. So she was- Right, you know, little Ricky. Yeah, so you know all these things that we just forgot. So I thought, what a great story, and then the love story I thought would be really fun, and and so so that's how the book came about. It was amazing. I mean, it was really, really amazing. I kept thinking, like, what? You know, it, it just it felt absolutely real. And also, what I really loved is you gave us a different facet of Lucille Ball. Um, you know, I saw her in an entirely different light because you made her a very determined, ambitious, uh, sexual woman. And you don't think of uh, Lucy as sexual, but also like not the best mom <laughs> either, which was really interesting. And I was wondering, like, because there's so many people who just, you know, they love Lucy, but they don't know Lucille. Has anybody like, you know, given you any pushback about that? Not yes. that I think they should. Yes. Oh, yes. No. I've heard from friends of hers who are still alive. This guy, Lee Tannen, who wrote a book called I Loved Lucy. He was a very good friend. He's much younger than she is. And he said, you know, it's true. She was not a great mother. Um, and she was very ambitious. But I have nothing but admiration for her. So, um, and, and, you know, and, and she is, uh, there are sex scenes in the book. And it was challenging to write sex scenes with Lucille Ball and my grandfather, you know. Um, <laughs> but she apparently was, you know, um, 
uh, a very sensual person as well. So I think, you know, I wanted to capture the full woman, not the, not the TV. Icon. Right. There were also a lot of stuff that you put in about her that I just didn't know. Like I didn't realize that she had been on Broadway and she actually was sort of a flop on it. Um, I had no, I had no idea about that. Um, your research must have been really fascinating. Like, what did you find out that you had no idea about that really totally surprised you? Well, what's so interesting about her, I think, she failed in Broadway. She failed in a lot of places. The TV show is her last shot, and the, and so she came from New York, upstate New York, to New York City at 16 years old, and they said you're not talented, go home. And so they sent her home. Wow. And then she came back again and again. And then she moved out to LA to try to be a movie star. And she made it sort of as a B movie actress. She was called the queen of the bees for a little while. Wow. And after a while she was dethroned from that and she was fired by RKO and fired by MGM. And so TV was her last shot and TV was not thought to be a great option. TV was a new medium and people thought, we don't know if this is gonna be a viable thing. Like there was not really a TV star before her. She and Milton Berle came out around the same time, but before that there were no major TV stars. It was like, you know, radio was much more popular than TV. So, so what struck me about her too was her, um, her skill I think was her determination. She would say of herself, I can't sing. I can't dance. I'm not that pretty. And I disagree with that, but that's what she Oh, I totally disagree with that. This was a time when women's looks were scrutinized even more than now. I could say it's a misogynistic time still in Hollywood. Right, right. In the 50s. And there were people who were more attractive than her, I guess. There were people who were better singers. There were people who were better actresses even. Like she, she would say, I'm not, I'm not a great dramatic actress. I'm pretty good. I'm not a comedian, I can't write my own stuff. So what was it about her that made her so beloved? And I think people sensed her and her, her uh, determination was I think a big part of it. She would not back down. And even the show made, made uh, a lot of um, material out of that. I mean, the show was about a woman who wanted to be famous and right. was talented and would try and try and try. That's and right. But she was also in the show, she was also always shut down by her husband. Yeah. You know, which was kind of interesting. The other thing that I thought completely fascinating was that um, she was Lucy to millions and millions of people, but to herself, she insisted that she was Lucille Ball, which was something very different. There was definitely that demarcation. So, can you talk a little bit about that? How she didn't want to be Lucy, this woman struggling? And I mean, for someone who owned the what was his club's name? The Copacabana, the Tropicana, I forget. Well, for someone who owned a club, they sure lived in a junky apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, um, you mean on the show, yeah. So he didn't own a club in real life, but on the show he owned the club. There's so many things about her that people, people blur the real and the fake. I mean, it's pretty sophisticated look at, at meta fiction in a way, you know, it's like right. the show, was about a woman named Lucy who was married to a band leader and she was named Lucy and married to a band leader. Um, I, to be honest, I accentuated the difference between Lucille and Lucy in the novel. Okay, I loved it. I love that you did. That was so interesting. Was more fictional, a more, just a way to sort of demarcate the difference between uh, 
truth and uh, or her character that she played and the person she was. Um, but uh, yeah, she she was very protective of her private life. And it's interesting, you know, she played America's wife and America's mom uh, later on when she had little Ricky. And, and she was in a very troubled marriage and was a very, I don't know the right word. I, I want to be diplomatic here. I guess a very um, disengaged mom. Um, yeah, that's what it sounded like. I mean, the reason that she was so adamant that Desi star as her husband on the show. So CBS said, even though your career is struggling, we'll give you this TV show. And we want you to be married to this guy um, uh, named Richard Denning. who's this white, waspy, blonde guy. And she said, no, I have to be married to my husband. And the reason she did that was because she knew that if she were away from him for any set amount of time, he would cheat on her. Because he would oh. Did he know that? Did Ricky know that? Did he know that he was just being in the show not because he was talented or he could be a star, but because his wife didn't trust him? I think she pitched it that it would be good for their marriage if they were together. Wow. After, you know, he wanted to be an actor too. So it was uh, it was good for his career, but so, so it didn't work. I mean, it worked in that they had the most popular marriage in the history of the country at that point. Yeah. But um, it didn't work in that he still cheated. And actually just wrote an article for Vanity Fair about this, where at the height of their fame, and this is a very, um, a very prim time, right? So in the show, they had to sleep in separate beds, even though they were married because- Right, right, all those shows did. Because TV networks thought we can't show people in the same bed, even if they're, um, even if they're uh, married. And as that was happening on the air, the, the magazine LA Confidential, or Hollywood Confidential rather, uh, had a big expose showing Desi sleeping with prostitutes. Oh, that was, that's right, that was in the book. <laughs> so it was well known. And they, and they were so beloved that American people, even in the 1953 would just say, yeah, fine, we don't care. Oh my God, gee, that has some parallels to what's going on today in politics, doesn't it? <laughs> one of the reasons, one of the things I wanted to examine in the book is, is fame as a, as a phenomenon in America and how damaging it is. I mean, in a way, my grandfather's character um, had this brush with fame and became seduced by the glamour of fame as much as by her. And so it kind of ruined his life. Yeah, fame, fame will do that. We, we were talking before we went online about um, all the, uh, my, my husband is a, was a rock journalist, now he's a music journalist, and I got to meet a whole lot of really big, famous people, and the ones who were the most famous were the biggest idiots. <laughs> I mean, they really were seduced by that, um, and that was something that I wanted to explore in my book as well. Um, I think it does ruin people. But I also wanted to ask about there's the other thing that I loved about the book was that there was this, it was so haunting. There was so much about missed, what people felt were missed opportunities or missed chances or what might have been. And you just, the, the more you get into the book, the more this yearning just grows and grows and grows. And you just feel like, 
oh, this is so terrible. So I wanted to talk to you about where you felt that yearning came from. And then after that, I want to talk about your role in the book as a young writer. But tell me about the yearning first. I, mean, I, I just, I feel like love stories are so rarely done well because love can be so difficult and so painful and so multifaceted, you know? I think that it's a cliche, but I think it's true that the, the most interesting part of the story is often after the end of the romantic comedy when you're together right. and it happens, right? So I thought a great love story was Love in the Time of Cholera. So I wanted to do an right. American version of that, you know, great love over many years that could be fantasy in the in the lovers heads or could be real you know I, I think that there's a question just about the nature of love itself in this book like is is it real is it is, how much is imagined so i think i wanted to look at that and then with my role in the book um so there are two storylines in the book one is lucille and my grandfather and the other one is me finding out that my grandfather had this love affair and then trying to get a movie made about it uh, based on an, uh, a screen uh, treatment he and Lucille did together. And that's very short, that's just 11 pages or 12 pages. But the interesting thing is when I handed the book in, um, that was a 300 page plot line. And uh, I, oh. I, yeah, and I, uh, I was a much bigger character and my wife uh, and- wow. And my editor said, you know, you got to get rid of this. So um, so it was the last book edited by the great uh, editor, Susan Camel, who, who died. Oh, right, uh, right, uh, right. A year where, ago. Where is this? So this treatment, this movie treatment script exists? And where no. is it? Oh, it doesn't. Oh, you made it up. You made it up. Okay. Because it sounded plausible and I, it sounded so plausible to me. And I was going to ask you that it seemed like a very strange thing to write a treatment about a black soldier. Um, but, just, um, maybe that would be a great movie that I thought yeah. would be hard to get made in the 50s. And so I thought, you know, the Civil War story about uh, an African-American freedman who, who fights in the Civil War and and so so was, that was the, the thing that they decided to do together and, and there was pushback because because uh, they didn't want to do a movie about black characters and then there would be pushback today because it would be uh, white creators telling that story so it was look at the the way different racial attitudes in different periods would push back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in in the book your character is certainly yearning to be someone and to achieve a kind of fame. And in your real life, you certainly have done that. So I wanted to know, like, what was it like for you when you first you were first starting out as a writer? Did you have that hunger for fame or did you just want to be a writer? And how did you feel when your first success came hugely? Well, I don't, I don't think uh, I'm there yet, but that's very kind of you. But uh, I think, um, I'd like to say I wanted just to do the work and, and let the work speak for itself. But I think when I was younger, I was more ambitious for that kind of stuff. And the older I get and the more I write, I realize that, that you can never really control that stuff or chasing right. that stuff is, is silly because a good book might do badly just because of one bad review and a and bad book might do well because of the timing or something. So 
I think I'm trying to get to this place where I'm just happy in the work. If I think the work is good, that should stand. As long as I'm allowed to continue to do it, you know, uh, that should be enough. I don't, still don't know if I'm quite at that Zen place, but I, you know, I want to just, I'm, I'm very proud of this book. I think it's good. It got me, uh, it took me a long time to do it. So hopefully that's enough. Anyway, yeah. if, I got, if I got a terrible review tomorrow in a big place, I might, <laughs> I might be different and I might say things differently, but so far the reviews have been quite good. So the reviews have been great. The reviews have been fantastic. Um, I always, I always think of a time when I got in the space of one day, I got this huge, huge, full page, worst review I ever got from the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then an hour later, I got a huge full page rave in the Washington Post. And the Washington Post loved everything that the Inquirer did not like. And I remember my husband looking at me saying, see, <laughs> you see why you shouldn't pay attention to this? And uh, it's interesting. It's, in it's interesting. Yeah, to, I, I, it shows how random it is. I mean, I, it's I very think- random. I'm trying to think who said that. Some writer I'm blanking on uh, said, getting published in foreign countries shows you how random it is because the same book will be a failure in England and a hit in France and you'll be a genius in Italy and a, a moron in Germany. And it's the same book. It's the same thing. Yeah, I have, I, well, I, I had a friend, I haven't seen him in a million years who published this book in the United States a million years ago called When I Was Five, I Killed Myself. Did not do well in the United States at all. Got literally no reviews, nothing. So he went to France and all of a sudden they gave him a medal, like whatever their top literary medal was. And uh, he lives there now because they love him there. They absolutely love him there. He sells out every single book he writes and he cannot get published. Howard Buton, Okay, it's so interesting. He's also a clown. He also does clown stuff, and they love him for that too. It's sort of the Jerry Lewis stuff. Huh. But it's like, you know, he used to, he's much older now. So now he just says, it doesn't matter. What do I care? But at the time when it was going on, it would drive him crazy. He would say he was on talk shows every night in France and in America. He couldn't get any editors to read his books. So yeah, I remember seeing Rod Stewart say that when he was young, he told his mom, I sold 20,000 records in the US and nothing here. And so she said, well, I got to move to America. And that's why he moved here, I guess. Wow. He was only in 20,000. Like he was obviously selling millions later on, but that's so. Yeah, I think, well, don't you think that that whole attitude though also comes with, like, as you get older and you suffer more losses and stuff, you start to realize, okay, what's important here? Yeah. And am I really going to buy into this? Or um, certainly it's nice when you have all the raves and the stuff, but it's not the most important thing in, in yeah, life. I, can. I think it's just getting to the place where you are able to make a living and know you'll be able to right. sell the next book. And then once that once that happens, then really, who cares, you know? Right, right. I, I do have to say that I'm very surprised that you don't think that you're famous because I and all the other, I mean, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I and all the other writers I know, we all think you are, so. <laughs> well, anyway, I want to know about your writing life. Like, tell us like what it's been like for you. It's probably tired of asking this question, but I'm really curious. What is it like for you writing in a pandemic? Well, yeah, I think, and I want to ask you the same thing. I mean, I I live in a part of Brooklyn that is pretty quiet and was not really hard hit. Uh, and so I wrote this thing for the Paris Review a few months ago about how it seemed so surrealistic because I would 
see these things on the news about how hard hit New York City was. But it, to me, it, it felt like just a pleasant interlude at first. And then right. Right. Actually my, my uh, I didn't lose anyone close to me, but you know, I saw the devastation, of course, and, and my step aunt died from it. And uh, oh, I actually had COVID, I think. I mean, I, you I, was, did. I, I was diagnosed with it. I, I never um, had a uh, test that said I had it, but uh, my doctor diagnosed me uh, with it and I felt bad. And uh, so, you know, it, it was. Uh, you weren't in the hospital though, right? You no, God, it was very, it was oh, that's much. good. That's lucky. Yeah. How about yourself? Um, it's been very weird. It's been very weird. And I think, honestly, the thing that saved me to a large extent was a mighty blaze. Because when the mighty blaze started, we were all working 20, 30 hours a day <laughs> trying to get this thing running. And it was so much work and nobody knew, we, nobody knew what we were doing. But on the other hand, it was good to be that busy because I wasn't thinking about nobody's, you know, nobody's outside, everybody's in mass, people are getting sick. I was thinking more in terms of what do I do? I don't understand this. I'm not a business person. How are we going to make this go? Um, it's so great that you did. I mean, it, it, it's, 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 uh, it's just altruistic, you know, it's a, such a generous thing to do for writers. It's such a kind thing. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I've had a lot of writers being incredibly kind to me on my way up. And I've also had like very few, but enough so that I would, I remembered it, like people being not so kind. And I always thought, why did they do that? I'm no threat to them. Why would, why would somebody be like that deliberately mean? And Can I just decided. It? Who was it? No, I'll tell you uh, later. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you in an email. But um, I just remember thinking, wow, it's so easy to do things for other people just to be kind. And I wanted to be that way. And when the pandemic started, it was right before I was supposed to go to Houston at this huge uh, library event. And I had done a whole like, speech with hand movements and they canceled it. And I was really mad. And I thought, this is terrible. How can I have a book coming out and everything's canceled? So I decided being a Pollyanna that nothing was canceled. And I made a video of my speech. I sent it to the libraries and they said, oh, this is great. And I thought, I'm going to tell my friends. And I started spreading the word to people saying, you know what, I'm going to put this on my blog, make a video, shout out another author, shout out an indie bookstore, and you know, it'll just be fun. And it started out fun. And then all of a sudden I had like hundreds of people. And I was very, very lucky that my friend, Jenna Blum called me up and said, you know, do you want help? I said, yes, God, please. And she has a very, um, she's like a film producer. She can juggle all these things and make all these things happen. And without her, they would not be a muddy blaze. And it's, it's been great. this, great. it's been this amazing thing because you get to, well, first of all, I get to talk to all these writers that I deeply admire, like you, and you're helping the bookstores, which is always great and important, and you're helping other writers, which is great and important, and it forms a kind of community barrier against all the bad stuff that's happening outside. Yeah, and it's, you know, when, it, when I was told my book was coming out in August, it was the same thing. I was freaked out, you know? Yeah. Uh, I thought they did. A, I, I mean, I, I thought I did a good job. I hope they did. I thought they did a great job with the cover. The cover is gorgeous. I love I'm the red so, heels. So happy with it. And yeah, usually you have input or you don't like it and, and you have to argue with them. They sent me this and I just, from the first, I thought this is perfect, you know? So I'm looking have at you, too. I, I, 
I see you have a blurb from Helen Shulman, who I love. Are you friends with Helen? She's, no, you know what? As Helen is like, I, I mean, I know I know her. I, had, I was assigned to review her book for, I don't know if it was for the Times or the Boston Globe, and I just loved the book. I absolutely loved the book. And I just, you know, I wrote a great review for it. Um, and she wrote it and thanked me, and then months passed. And then I wrote her this email saying, Oh, I hate to ask you, but could you blurb my book? And she said, are you kidding? After the review you gave me, I'd give you my left lung. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. So, you know, all these things sort of go around and, and come around. But no, I, you know, as, as you know, the, the blurb system is like totally anxiety. <laughs> but I think that books are books are are doing pretty well now the only thing is zoom what i call zoom fatigue yeah. it's sort of it used to be in new york you just had to you were just up against well who else is reading tonight so they're going to go to that person's event and not mine now you have a million zooms that you can go to so it's always who's are you going to go to and who are they going to choose you, know, you can have people from all over the country watch you you know which is great right. and i right. did an event with them I teach at NYU, and so we host a bunch of events. And uh, we did an event for Joyce Carol Oates, and that was so cool because I wouldn't have been able to get her probably in there. And she was so great. And she was so funny, you know. She, she, she's, she's an idiosyncratic person. So I asked her a question. She said, "Oh, let me get a picture." And she just left. And then there's this dead <laughs> screen. She went and found this photo of herself and Mike Tyson. And she came back. And, uh, That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it's a whole new world. I want to tell everybody out there, if you would like to ask staring questions or if you'd like me to ask questions, there's my trampoline right over there. You might want to ask about it. Right. Um, please do so. And we will be like more than happy to answer any questions. Um, I want to ask about the trampoline. What is the trampoline? Oh, see it over there? It's yeah. my, I, it, it's like, it's a mini trampoline. And somebody told me that, um, as you probably can tell, I'm a really anxious person. And I've got all this anxious energy. And so I can't do anything like yoga because it's too slow and it's too like, I like to zoom around. So a friend of mine bought a trampoline and she said, it's the best thing. You just go on it 20 minutes a day and um, everything is cool and you'll really love it. And it was cheap enough. So I bought it and I bounce on it 20 minutes every day, blast the music. And oddly enough, after 20 minutes, you're, you're sweating. You're really, really sweating. And it's good for your bones. It's good for your breathing. And it makes me feel like, okay, I did some exercise because... I don't really love exercise to begin with, but this is fine. In the pandemic, I bought. I I used to bike to Manhattan from Brooklyn. That was my exercise. I would just skip the subway, and I have been able to do that. So I bought a heavy bag, and I've been punching in my basement this punching bag, which is really wow. good exercise, and it's great for stress. Yeah, I have faces on it, and I just punch them. Do you know how to punch? Is there a correct way to punch? I'm supposed to. Very, very, I always forget where you're supposed to put your thumb. Yeah, you have to be careful. You can break your thumb, you can break your wrist, so you have to know how to punch. But it's it's good. Uh, I've become a better puncher, so I feel like if I get into a fight with uh, a reviewer now, they should watch out. <laughs> you know the Richard Ford story, right? Alice Hoffman gave one of his books a negative review, so he took a gun hmm. and he shot a hole through one of her books and he delivered it to her. So 
<laughs> that's kind of here when he spit on Colson Whitehead. Yes, that's right. That's right. He did do that. I always figure, you know what? Sometimes a really nasty review is even better than a good review because I think that when readers read it, they're looking to see what the book is about in the plot. And if somebody's deliberately nasty, you can tell, yeah. oh, that person has something going on in them that they need to express. And Colson had a great response. So he spit on, so Colson gave him a better view in the Times. And then there was this, some writer's event where uh, he spit on him. And then the page six called Colson to ask about it. And he said, I'm not really that concerned. Uh, I've often been drooled on by older people. Oh God! Such <laughs> a great comeback, I thought so. That's really funny. Yeah, there's been all kinds of like things like that. Actually, the greatest thing that ever helped me was when I became a, a book reviewer myself, because then I learned how subjective it is, and I began to look at every book that came in and think, you know what? Nobody deliberately sets out to write a bad book or to write a book where they think, oh, this is gonna really piss off this reviewer and that's why I'm doing it. Each yeah. book is a lot of hard work. And if you're gonna criticize it, at least do it in a way that's helpful or kind by saying things like, well, I would have, maybe I would have wished that there was more of this character instead of saying, oh, this book is so boring and, and I just wanted to jump off my house. And yeah. it made me realize that you know, I, I look at books differently now and I look at reviews differently and I always look at who is reviewing somebody because a lot of times it's, you know, it's, it's very subjective. Um, Jane is going to look to see if there's questions for you. Yeah, yeah. I think with this book, um, because it's about Lucille Ball, I think um, I'm going to, I'm getting a lot of readers I might not ordinarily get because it's, Right, that's literary, right. Literary readers, but also fans of Lucille Ball. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious what people are going to say, because um, I, I did set out to write a fun book, but I also think it's literary as well. So I think I, what I want to do with this book, I, I once was talking to a, a Barnes Noble executive. Uh, I was nominated for the for, for my first book for um, uh, the Discover New Writers Award. And the woman who ran the program said, there are two kinds of books. There are books, literary books, we read slowly. And then there are page turners. And I wanted to prove her wrong. I wanted to say, you know, you, you I'm, both. So, I'm so glad you said that because I absolutely agree. I, I hate when they mark things as like, you know, what's literary and what's commercial. It's sort of like, can something be both? And I think that's what I love so much about your book because not only was it a, it was a total delight to read about Lucille Ball, but what also got me was the haunting quality and the yearning. I just, and also the, the beauty of the writing, definitely the beauty of the writing. Okay, you have a question. What would you like your readers to take from your books after reading them? If well, this is from Lisa Haney. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. I mean, I guess to answer Lisa, I, what we just said, you know, I want this book to be entertaining. I, you know, George Saunders says, whatever else you want to get across in the book, be it moral uplift or, or social messaging, it depends on people enjoying it, getting what he calls pleasure bursts. And so I feel like I did want to examine fame and what it means to be uh, ambitious in this book. And I wanted to examine how complicated love can be. 
but I also wanted to give pleasure bursts. I wanted this book to be fun first and then and then get all that other stuff out there. Okay, um, this says, says you too, Caroline. Okay, what I'd like readers to take from this is um, a little bit of knowledge about brain chemistry, that your brain changes all the time and the neurons are always firing and refiring and you don't have to go through a coma to have that happen. And I wanted people to realize that you know, any moment something can happen in your life and it doesn't have to be a disaster. It can be something that derails you in a good way. And that is sort of the message that I wanted to give people and that you can have some input into that with some struggle, but it does work. Hmm. Okay, any other questions from anybody? Okay, then I guess we're gonna wind it up. I'm gonna say, Darren, it's like, it's been such a thrill for me to interview. I feel like I've been stalking you online for, so <laughs> since, since your first books. Um, and it's delightful to talk to you. And thank you so much for coming on The Blaze. This will be recorded so that anybody out there tell your friends, they can, they can see it again and again and again. They can memorize it if they want. Um, and please buy Darren's book, The Queen of Tuesday. It's absolutely wonderful. And if you buy my book, With You Without You, um, I will make you a watercolor. Yeah. You just have to let me know. So thank you all. And um, let me thank just you. tell the tech person that we're signing off. So great. Thank yeah. you so much. Really. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Daryl. We'll talk to you later. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd so appreciate a review or a share to help other book lovers find us. Tune in next time for a great conversation with best-selling author Jay Courtney Sullivan. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Thank you.